effort that goes into a Sunday morning. Thank you. Thanks, Lynette. Hi, team. Hi, guys. Thank you, team. Hi, guys. Hi, everybody. Welcome to church. Um, those that don't know me, uh, my name is Damo. Great to see a couple of visitors in the house. Um, Bruce, if you're able, are you able to go sit up on that uh, sound desk for us? Thanks so much. Hey, um, oh, what a great week that I've had um, exploring what it is to do uh, the follow-up to what Braden started last week. So Braden was here last week. He preached on Pentecost Sunday, which um, I've got to be honest, I caught the first 10 minutes of his sermon. It's available online or it will be uh, sometime this week. Um, the follow-up to Pentecost Sunday is always Trinity Sunday. Uh, such an amazing idea of, hang on a second, Trinity Sunday, we need to follow up and we need to actually acknowledge what the Holy Spirit is in amongst uh, the Godhead, right? So uh, in the ninth century, Pope uh, Gregory the Ninth decided to commemorate the Holy Spirit's descent after Pentecost Sunday uh, to include Christians' appreciation of this idea of the Holy Trinity. Um, as I was preparing, because it's Trinity Sunday, um, it's really hard, right, to talk about the Trinity without falling into perhaps what some would call heresy, yeah? And so I came across this quote, and it says this, that if the doctrine is discussed by Christians for more than a few minutes, it's believed that in some way or another, you are in danger of committing heresy, right? So no matter what we do today, you're probably going to label me a heretic by the end. And if you talked about it for five minutes, we, I could probably have the pleasure of labeling you a heretic also. But we, there's grace in this room today, right? So what I want to do is to use what I'm going to present today as a discussion, uh, a discussion point, a primer point for discussion so that we can go deeper to learn about the mystery that is God in the Trinity. The mystery that is God in the Trinity. Um, I want to give us just a few minutes just to think. Um, I was hoping that it might happen in the service and it hasn't. That's okay. Um, I want you to think, I used to think God was this, but now I've come to understand God is that. Does anybody have uh, one of those that they, they feel comfortable to share? Uh, we'll start with my wife, Miriam. Miriam? You are, no, you're good. Sit down. <laughs> okay, keep going, keep going. Basically, that's the sermon in a nutshell. I'm going to go now. <laughs> um, no. That's great. Does anybody else have a, I used to think about God, uh, and now I think this. I used to think this about God, and now I think this. Does anybody have one other? 
that they feel comfortable sharing. Kasha, do you mind if I bring the mic to you? Okay. Um, I used to think God was um, very strict and um, harsh and, um, yeah, and, and like uh, Miriam, I uh, always worried that um, I wouldn't be good enough and I would stuff up and um, that God would only accept me when I had made sure I read my Bible or, uh, you know, hadn't stuffed up during the day. But um, I don't know, one day God came to me, it was through a sermon, and he said, what kind of a God do you think I am? And I realized, because uh, I think it was from that story on um, where God came back and the servant that had buried his talent and said, I know that you are a harsh and cruel master. So God spoke to me and said, what, what kind of a God do you think I am? And I realized that my opinion of him was kind of like that. Um, I thought of him as harsh and just watching every move I made. And he said to me, you can have whatever kind of God you think. If you want a harsh God, I can be harsh. He said, but that's not my real nature. And he showed me a really loving, kind, gracious God that loved me who... I was, and I was blown away, and I thought, that's the kind of God that I want. Thanks, Kasha. So good. Um, does anybody have any any little specific tidbit about um, any theological perspective or point? Sure. I might end up a heretic before I say anything. <laughs> I used to think that God was God, uh, God was God, and then the Holy Spirit was the Holy Spirit, and Jesus was Jesus, and that they were, where it all connected with the Trinity, I never could work it out. But I have a very simple way of thinking, and then one day I realised that for me, I could do it this way. So if I look at Damon, Damo, he is a son of his parents. He is a father. And he is a husband. But he's still Damo. But he's got those three sections to him. And so that's how I look at God. That the three th sections are one. Awesome. Thank you so much. Hey, um... So, I've got some apples here, and I was hoping to have some out on the table. Here, Timo. You're good at catching Oh, man. Just want to leave these apples on our tables, just as a reference for us. And I've got one up on the stand here next to a rock. Sorry if you didn't get an apple. There are a few more in the, in the kitchen later. There's something about this idea of... Um, has anybody ever said the words, I want a relationship with God? Stick your hands up if you say, I want a relationship with God. Something about our relationship with God that is living, 
right? Our, our relationship with God is living. It is constantly changing and we are learning more about God. God is teaching us who he is more and more. But then at some times we actually go, hang on a second. God is fixed. God is this. This is who I see God to be. And he's a rock. And I think today I want to sort of push into this space of what is, how do we go from thinking actually God is a fixed thing to actually God is a living thing? Because I can tell you my relationship with this rock is nowhere as enjoyable as my relationship with this apple. All right, so that's the primer for today. Um, let's, let's actually get into a start. I'm going to tell you a joke. A distressed man, he goes to a police station and he reports his wife missing. The officer begins by asking a few questions. How high is she? The man says, I'm not, um, you know, she's not too tall, but she's not too short. The officer says, well, how much does she weigh? And he says, well, she's not thin, but she's not really fat either. The officer says, well, um, you know, what's her hair color? And the man says, well, it, it changes with the season. So maybe brownish. The officer says, well, what's her eye color? And he, and he says, oh, it's green, I think. And the officer says, well, what's the last time you saw her? And he says, well, yesterday she was in my car. And the officer says, well, what's the details of the car? And he says, well, it's a, it's a 2020 uh, 2.4 liter turbo diesel Toyota Hilux dual cab with chrome mags. And it's been chipped and upgraded with a full blown exhaust. And it's got leather seats and electric everything. It has an RM Williams sticker on the back and fluffy dice. And the officer says, don't worry, sir. We'll find your car. And so if we love something... This is the point, right? If we love something, we say we love God, if we want a relationship with God, if we love something, we want to spend time getting to know about it. We want to understand it. When we love something, we can recall little bits of information about it with a barely a thought. Things start coming out about the things that we love. You know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Luke 6. If you've been married for a while, I'm certain you know things, as I do about my wife. And don't worry, I'm not going to reveal any of those. But at the same time, you know, she knows my deepest, darkest secrets because we are in relationship. And it's no different to our understanding of who God is, right? From the very early church fathers until today, we're still coming to an understanding of who God is. If we love God, then we want to grow in our knowledge of who God is. Be almost the almost standoffish description of who God is in, uh, in Exodus 3. Exodus 3, God says... Moses says, who are you? And he says, well, I am who I am. Yeah. You know, God is this almost standoffish, well, I am who I am. How did we come to an understanding, you know, being Trinity Sunday? How do we come to this idea of Trinity? How do we come to the understanding of a triune God? What is the purpose of a triune God? What does it mean about God? Can we even understand it? You know, there are better men than I that can give a quick reference to this. And so I want to show you a five-minute primer video on some of the biblical texts to support this idea of Trinity, um, but also what the mystery of the Trinity might mean for us. Okay, so can we flick to that video, five-minute video? Um, let's see what, what we've got here. One more. Doctrine of the Trinity. Now, this is one of those doctrines that for centuries, for millennia, really even since the early church, 
there's been controversy and conflict around it. So I don't know what you believe about it, but we're going to take a look at what scripture says about it. And I want to start with a definition, an orthodox definition of the Trinity. And here it is. There's one God who exists eternally in three persons. When we think about the oneness of God, we talk about his being. And when we think about the threeness of God, we talk about his persons. I love how Wayne Grudem says it in his book, Systematic Theology. He says, when the universe was created, God the Father spoke the powerful creative words that brought it into being. God the Son was the divine agent who carried out these words. And God the Holy Spirit was active, moving over the face of the waters. Now, if you're someone who struggles with this idea, maybe you've studied it, maybe you grew up in a church that taught something different than what we're teaching, I just encourage you to pay attention to how God's Word explains it. It's clear, I believe, it's clear as you read God's Word that there's one God in being who exists as three distinct persons. Now, even though the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, the idea of God being three in one is found throughout its pages. And I want to just give you a few quick examples from three different authors. Let's start with Jesus in Matthew 28, 19. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus doesn't use the word Trinity here, but it's clear that Jesus is ascribing divinity to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus, for sure, thought that he was God. And then Paul said stuff like this, 2 Corinthians 13, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, of course, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So again, Paul doesn't use the word Trinity, but it's so obvious that he's talking about the divinity of Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And one more example, this is from the Apostle Peter. I love this verse, 1 Peter 1, verse 2. It says, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you've obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. What we notice here, when it comes to the work of salvation, we notice that God the Father has a role, God the Son, Jesus, has a role, and God the Holy Spirit has a role. And that's part of what we're going to learn about the distinction between the three persons of the Trinity. But for this first lesson, I want to finish with one really important point. God's nature really is a mystery to us because God is fundamentally different from us. Consider this, that you exist as one being and one person. Everyone that you've ever met exists like that. Every human being is one being and one person because we're human beings. But God is different. God is fundamentally different from us. God is the only being who exists as one being and three persons. It's hard for us to understand that. It's hard for us to even put that into words or wrap our minds around it. But it is clearly what scripture points to from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. And so when we read Job 11:7, can you solve the mysteries of God? Can you discover everything about the Almighty? The obvious answer is no. God's nature is too great for us to understand. Or in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, when Paul writes, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. 
We have to agree with Paul that God really is beyond what our finite minds can understand. Or when we read verses like this in Revelation chapter 4, we get this picture into heaven. It says there, John writing, Instantly I was in the Spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven, and someone sitting on it. And around the throne were four living beings. Day after day and night after night, they keep on saying, Holy, 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 which some consider to be reference to the Trinity, is the Lord God Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Pictures of heaven like this prove to us that God really is different than we are. We are not God. We will never be God. Every picture we have in scripture of eternity is God at the center and we're worshiping him because God is worthy of worship. That's just part of what his nature calls for. Our God is a three in one God and he is always worthy of our worship. Hey guys, I want to remind you that we have resources, so check it all out at PursueGod.org. And that's it. I love that this video draws out the otherness of God. It's the thing that makes God, God. That God is not human, that God was there in the beginning, the uncaused first cause of creation, out of time incomprehensible in scale and in majesty and we read about it in our readings today uh, I love that everything that we read today has come back to this idea of Trinity uh, Proverbs eight twenty seven: when he established the heavens I was there or Psalm 8 verse 1 uh, where it says O Lord our sovereign God how majestic is your name in all the earth you have set your glory above the heavens you know, we're really unable to nail down some aspects of who God is because of this. We just don't have the language for the immensity or the power. No word that we have in its fullest meaning, not in the English, not in Greek, nor in any other language that we understand, could ever fully encapsulate and describe the greatness and the majesty of our God. And that's why there's so many songs written. Uh, that's why we've been singing and talking and proclaiming this morning. As we've been singing about who God is this morning, proclaiming, you know, he's a way maker, he's a miracle worker, he's a light in the darkness, he's a promise keeper. And yet somehow today we have to, you know, celebrate and deepen our understanding of who the Trinity is to us. We've done some good Bible referencing in the video. I want to spend some time now to raise, I think, two things that are important for praxis. You know, what this means as an understanding of how Trinity is outworked as we live our lives. I want to see what happens when these scriptures meet our lived experience. And so I want to do two things. One thing that I want to do, I want to give us a quick overview of the history of the doctrine of the Trinity. How did some of the parts of it come to be by the early church fathers who put it together? Basically, I want to look at heresies. I want to look at incorrect ideas of how the Trinity was formed so that we can know more about it. And then the second thing I want to do is look at why a correct understanding of God and Trinity will lead us to this idea of actually there is nothing else that we can do except for understand God, try and understand the mystery and the greatness that is God. Okay? So... Uh, Trinity and heresy, how we got to understanding this idea of Trinity. 
in our video it was noted that the word trinity is never actually used in the scriptures this is a doctrine that the church has made up it's a doctrine that humans have made up an understanding based upon a group of different scriptures that help us to understand god we know some aspects of who god is by his revelation to us whether general or specific and this has always been the way abraham when he got called called from ur across to palestine moses when he came to know god through the burning bush and god slowly revealed more and more of who god is through ten commandments and then we received even broader revelation of who god is through jesus and piece by piece we get this picture of humanity slowly being ready to learn more and more about who god is generation by generation but at the end even with all this we don't know all of god because we're not equal to god we don't have the words there is always going to be a mystery surrounding god's shape because of this otherness this ongoing revelation and growth of knowing who god is it continued after jesus with the early church fathers and i'm going to take us on a quick history lesson it's going to span from 50 ad all the way through to 1200 um so hold on to your seats for the next 5 minutes okay each of the main church fathers added something to our understanding of who god is whether they came from italy and rome alexandria and egypt or constantinople over in turkey probably that side for you guys if you're thinking geographically and in each of their different languages they had their own words to describe how they perceived the different persons of god whether that be homoousis homoousius or hypostasis or any of those other big words that we're not going to get into okay they all had their different languages and words to describe how they perceived the different persons of god um in a moment we're going to read the nicene creed uh and that is a translation from the original greek text and it uses some funny words to describe god's different persons each of these church fathers had an idea of how god might look each had an opinion an opinion on what was true and right and each had a following of people who followed on from their thoughts afterwards as each of the early church fathers grappled with this idea of father son and spirit they came across passages that read on their own might indicate that what we would now say hang on a second as you read that if you follow that to its end that's a heresy and you say hang on a second that could never be but actually today what we've read has one in it already i don't know if you picked it up uh proverbs 8:22 the lord created me at the beginning of his works the first acts of long ago is proverbs here let's let's work it out for the moment is proverbs here talking about the holy spirit is proverbs here talking about jesus well it's proverbs and the beginning of proverbs starts with this idea of wisdom and i was there the sophia um so our context here is proverbs so it's wisdom so i'd attribute it to meaning the holy spirit but then again if either jesus or the holy spirit are created then that makes them less than what god is mm to which the fathers argued that salvation sacrifice offered by somebody that was less than god may not be sufficient for the redemption of sin in the world and so it's so easy for the church fathers to become caught up in these thoughts and it's easy for us today also this is where our theology and our ideas of god grow and we need to work our brain muscle to see what makes sense in amongst the mystery 
I love the Romans passage, uh, Romans 5 passage this week. In verse 3, uh, it says that, and not only that, but we also boast in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Hope doesn't disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. As we challenge ourselves with these things, as we try to come to an understanding, we develop hope, we develop character. But at the same time, we need to be open to learning more. We need to be open to challenging, changing our mind about how we currently understand God. And the challenge, you know, is the only way that we're going to grow by actually coming across this idea of who God is, by impacting and going, hang on a second, who is Jesus? What does he mean as I come up against? Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he mean when I come up? What is God the Father? What does that mean? What does it mean that they're all together? And these things, I'm sure, I'm sure you guys have wrestled with this. Stick your hand up if you've wrestled with this stuff. Yep. Stick your hand up if you've got it all worked out. Ooh, that's a hard one. You know, where did this idea of heresy even come from? For those that like to sit with Scripture and like to take notes, um, for those that are online, we can see a scriptural picture of this actually starting to happen in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 22. In the mid-50s AD, Paul is teaching the Corinthian church on the Last Supper. And he's talking about the different groups that have already been forming about who Jesus is and what, what the act of the Last Supper is you know, communion. And in that group, in that 1 Corinthians 11, feel free to open it if you want, some people in that group are claiming to have a truer belief than others. And the different word for the different groups or the different opinions is sometimes translated as that sect or that party. And you actually already see it in the Jewish languages in the in the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the two different sects of the Jewish religion. In verse 19, the word is used, the difference groups, the parties or the sects. In the Greek, that word that they use for the different groups is eresis, now translated heresy. No, no H in the Greek, but now transliterated into English. And so what started in the early church in Corinthians as a, just a difference of opinions, has now flourished through the church fathers into the splitting of the church over and over again, into this understanding of who has the truest sense of God, who has the truest doctrinal belief. From Eastern Orthodox or Catholic belief splitting around 1100, uh, from there Catholic or Protestant beliefs, 1500s, each holding their own opinion as higher or truer than the last. And Paul's rebuke to these people is simple. Jesus, who is God, is for you all as a community, as a reflection of the relationship between the Godhead itself. Jesus is for you. Why are you holding your opinions so tightly? Oh. Now that's hard, right? Because, now hang on a second, we're Baptist. <laughs> We need to believe this and this and this. Yes, we do. You know, there's obviously a true belief and there is a grounding of what is accurate and true. But I think this message from Paul is, is appropriate for us as well. You know, unfortunately, 
you know, from 50s, only, only a century later, another controversy came to head within the leadership of the church. And they wanted to know the role of what the Holy Spirit was. Was the Holy Spirit the ultimate authority? And, and was the ultimate authority of, of the Holy Spirit greater than the authority of Scripture? And you can see where that might lead, right? If Scripture's more important, um, the Spirit's more important than Scripture. Um, and you could see how they got there. If we look at today's passage in John 16, verse 12, where it says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He'll guide you into all the truth. For, uh, he'll guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own. Ah, good. Okay, we can bring the Scripture back in there. Good. But how do you arrange who's in charge of the Trinity? And the early church fathers, this is 170. Uh, this was... Um, the prophet Montanus, along with two female prophetesses, Maximilian and Priscilla, they would have read this verse in John 16, um, and they spoke of a new prophecy. They insisted on the role of the Holy Spirit being above the authority of Scripture during a worship service. From this controversy, the church had to confirm what would be orthodox, what would be true teachings. Whether Scripture should be used in conjunction with the Spirit, or perhaps Scripture should be held as more valuable than charismatic giftings. And because of this, the church had to start defining the doctrine, defining the doctrine of Trinity. And eventually, the Montanists were actually the first groups uh, to be excommunicated by a bishop, a synod of bishops in the 170s. Um, and this is an element that, if carried to its end, you know, this idea of spirit would see people valuing the spirit over reason. And you can see how actually it was really good for the church to do this as a protective measure for its for its people. Um, we, we know now um, of the trauma that's being caused by people saying, I do this because God told me to, um, in some ways and forms, in the negative, of course. Um, but the development of the doctrine of, Trinity, the doctrine of Trinity, it continued on from that point, right? There were other people pushing the limits of what might seem right at the time, and I can't get into all of that now. From there, the Nicene Creed was written in 325 and later revised in 381 through a couple of councils. This was truly the start of the written form of the doctrine of the Trinity and the start of its defense in what it is. And it answers the questions posed by a growing number of Christians from across, you know, those different uh, groupings of the church fathers from the Italy to uh, Alexandria to Constantinople. In, in that 325, there were 300 bishops in attendance, and they started trying to answer this question. And as much trouble as you had trying to share what Trinity was to me, and as much trouble as I'm having now, bordering on heresy, sharing this stuff with you, um, they also had that trouble. I'd love for us to actually read out the Nicene Creed um, together. We can read this out, and I'll, I'll hold us up at the different points about uh, the Trinity in there. Uh, let's read this out together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. Keep going. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, eons. Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, 
consubstantial with the Father by whom all things were made. Let's hold there. That consubstantial, go back one. That consubstantial, that was that word homo usius, the same stuff, the same stuff as God. And so they needed to try and nail down, where did Jesus fit? Was Jesus above the Father? Was the Father above Jesus? Was Jesus created? Um, you know, all of these different things. Let's keep going. Uh, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, uh, sorry, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost and of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. Keep going. From thence he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. In one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Man, they nailed all that down in the first 300 years of Christianity. Um, so good. And they did. I think, I think this has been the backbone. This is something that we all believe and, is, and has um, continued on and been a touchstone for people and for nations throughout the generations. So good. Um, I'd love for you to do some further study at home about how this document was written. It's funny uh, to see how the people constantly looking for the right words to describe this mystery of God in the Trinity. Is there anything in there that you go, hang on a second, that doesn't make sense today? And some of it doesn't make sense to me, but hey, you know, if we're going to be honest, how are these things three in one? You know, but at the end of the day, the church... At the end of 325, it now had an official creed. Let's keep going with the history lesson. Now garnered the attention of the Roman Emperor Theodosius, who was the Roman Emperor that came after Constantine. In 379, he made Christianity the official state religion of Rome. And because of this, he was really the first to solidify and give social implication to the forming of tribes within Christianity. That's a big word. Let me say that again. Okay. Because of this, Theodosius was the first to solidify and give social implication to the forming of tribes within Christianity. Okay, um, we'll get to that in a second. This meant that those who were part of the church were part of the church, and those that weren't part of this were shunned. So you were shunned uh, in the marketplace, you get denial of service to those people who are, who are heretics. With this formal decree, he moved Christianity from being simple followers of the way of the light into forming the archetype of what a church should look like. And it reinforced the idea of who is a heretic, who is different, who is other, and it creates a tribe. And Theodosius, he writes this. Uh, I'll start a little bit before the, uh, the highlight there. According to the apostolic teaching and the doctrine of the gospel, let us believe in the, in the deity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in equal majesty and in a holy trinity. I love that just on its own. That is a perfect uh, trinity doctrine. We authorize the followers of this law to assume the title of Catholic Christians. 
Catholic in that, you know, the universal Christian. But as for the others, since in our judgment they are foolish madmen, we decree that they shall be branded with the ignominious name of heretic. And this is where it started. This is where our tribes start, right? All the way back then. Later on in the 12th century, the well-known theologian uh, Thomas Aquinas, he doubled down on this idea of heretics. He wrote defining a heretic as a species of infidelity in men who, having professed the faith of Christ, corrupt its dogmas or doctrines. Where am I going with this, right? As I bring these ideas forward today, it boggles my mind that we as a denominational Baptist church in Margaret River might also be holding on to the idea that, hang on, our beliefs are the truest beliefs or the rightest beliefs. Sorry, Catholics. Sorry, Eastern Orthodox. You know, I loved where I preached a month ago about Paul breaking bread with Lydia, the first convert in um, yeah, Philippi. The, f- the person who feared God was enough in that space. And so, as I, as I get to this point now, I'm, I'm almost scared to say this next part, right? But the fear of talking about our theology with others, um, the fear of talking about our theology will lead to the death of our church. If we are scared to talk about our theology, if we are scared to talk out this, how does this work, and what does it mean as I come against it in my reasoning, in my human existence here now, in my lived experience, how do I see this at work? How do I see the Father in engaging with me? How do I see the Holy Spirit engaging with me? How do I see Jesus engaging with me? How do I, how do I join this all together? If I don't talk about that, then that will be the death of the church. It needs to continue to evolve in a sense the same way that God made himself known to the different people through history, Abram, Moses, so on and so forth. Now, I'm not saying that we need to rethink the Trinity. What I'm saying is we need to continue to develop and grow in our theology just like they did through that point. Now, theology always evolves with culture. Abram, Moses, Jesus our statement of faith on the wall there. Um, it's good. It's good. It, when was the last time you looked at our statement of faith? Has it helped you? You know, have we gone to being rock-like in our understanding of who God is? Are we actually alive to who God is in that moment, in that space? Have we made our statement of faith into idols? You know, it's scary saying this. I'd almost prefer a church full of heretics who want to talk and develop ideas and grow in our understanding of God than in a, in a room of people that say that they've got it all together. And if you say that you've got, you've got it all together, then there's no room for growth in your understanding of who God is. And you've missed, coming back to that video, you've missed the mystery that is the oneness of God. the mystery of the otherness of God. In talking with someone about this stuff this week, an important comment was made. The person said, as humans, we've done it over and over again. We've turned faith into a set of rules. 
equating somebody having faith with somebody having a set of doctrinal beliefs. Where actually Christian faith revolves around a simple relationship. Simple relationship with God. And I love what you said, Kasha. I love what you said, Miriam. Yahweh, who for a time revealed himself in Jesus and now is ongoing and active in the world through the Holy Spirit, Christ in us. And so I'd love to encourage you to do further study on this area of heresies that got us to this point. Um, if you're interested in looking at it, I'd love to give you a framework, something to understand how they all came to be, why this doctrine got made up in this way. What implications do they have on our theology? Okay, so it's time to change gears. I hope that was a helpful history lesson. Is that okay? Yeah? Okay, so what's our response to this mystery then? We've got to go back to mystery. We've got to come back to this idea of God being other. What is your response to a glimpse of the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit? When you're confronted with the grand scale of the Creator, who was the uncaused first cause of all existence, how do you respond? When you find yourself led to a place um, and a circumstance in life that could not have happened any other way than by providence, how do you respond to that? When faced with the fallenness of humanity, the need for redemption from that fallenness, when it's been granted and all you have to do is accept it, how do you respond to that? And it has to be in worship. It has to be an outworking of joy, that feeling you get of gratefulness when you see a beautiful sunrise. Uh, Lynette mentioned it this morning. I can't believe that's in here. Um, the awe you get when you look at a thunderous wave crashing on a beach. You know, or the warmth in your soul when you receive a long, loving hug. What is our response to that? It can only be that of gratefulness and actually worth, worth giving back to God in that space. I love that old song, uh, Ascribe Greatness to Our God, The Rock. We can do nothing but continue to use our puny words to do the best that we can do to acknowledge God's greatness. And I love that line in Amazing Grace, we've got no less days to sing his praise. I love that line. Depending on how you view eternity, our words, no matter how long we're there, could still never comprehend the glory that God is. And as we see the three of them in one person face to face, as we get close to the end now, the opening joke today, it revealed a secret that we like to intimately know the things that we love and we want to know them more. But actually the joke can be read in two ways. You know, the husband who seemed to care more about the car than his wife, well actually maybe he actually loves his wife and to be, you know, and he's so comfortable in their relationship that actually maybe he's desperately looking for his wife and wants to give the most accurate portrayal to the police officer as possible. Maybe he's come to enough of an understanding of his wife that he doesn't need to know that other stuff in complex detail because he knows her heart. He doesn't need to open her up to see what makes her tick because he has relationship with her. Or, are we, or do we think the opposite, that he should be memorizing fingerprints? Maybe we're pushing the edge of the metaphor here. But this is what it comes down to, right? When it's all said and done, 
Belief in the Trinity and God's three distinct forms is a matter of complete faith, complete trust. One born of relationship with God. What does that actually look like? You know, our relationship with God, our assurance that we've got it right. (laughs) How do we know that we've got it right? Our assurance that we've got it right comes in the peace that is experienced when you speak Jesus over your problems and your relationships. It comes from the fruit of the Spirit that is experienced in your life. You know, that love, the joy, the peace, the patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. As you follow this belief, as you hold to this doctrine, even though it's not in the Bible, as you hold to this doctrine, does it produce fruit? And then it's worth keeping. And we trust in God for that fruit. What's the point of the focus on the Trinity today? As our understanding of God evolves, as we consider each person of the Trinity, it then helps us to inform our response to God. And the only response that's appropriate is worship. From there, we're invited to engage in mission, service in our life. We haven't even begun to unpack the interactions between the people of the Trinity today. We haven't even begun to get to them. But I want to leave it open for you guys to explore and to do a bit of study for yourselves this week. I want you to be amazed afresh at the mystery of the outworking of the three-in-one. I want you to be almost heretical, almost heretical, thinking some crazy things about how God loves or how the Spirit moves, how Jesus is flesh on earth, and share that with someone else this week. I want you to be challenged. I want you to grow in your faith. And I I don't want you to fear the opinions, the heresies. I don't want you to fear the opinions of other people. But actually, as we go through learning about these things, that we'll be able to come back to them, actually go, you know what? I hear that, and that's a great opinion, and actually, I can't go with you there, but I want to interact with you still. Yeah. As we close, do you want an uncomfortable question as a primer for theological discussion after our service today? This, this is, yeah, okay. Um, somebody I spoke to this week, oh, there was a good one. Uh, somebody spoke to me this week about the current location of the physical, eternal body of Christ. He says, oh, you believe in the Trinity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you believe in Jesus as a, as a man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happened to Jesus' body if he's eternally Jesus in the flesh? Oh, my goodness, holy dooly. How do I answer that one with a guy on the street? Anyway, feel free to actually talk about that in amongst yourselves as you have a cup of tea and coffee afterwards. And, you know, with that question in mind, I'll say it again. Think something crazy heretical about how God loves how the Spirit moves, how Jesus is flesh on earth, and share it with somebody else this week. Yes, our 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 theology of Trinity is fixed, yeah, but that doesn't mean that our understanding of how it interplays and outworks isn't for you to to discover and to fall deeper in love with God or deeper into relationship with God or deeper into understanding, depending on which language you like, yeah. Be challenged, enjoy the conversations, grow in faith, don't fear the opinions of others. Don't fear the heresies of others. The, those things Christ says 
uh, Paul says that Christ's work is enough. Simply work out your faith with fear and awe of God. Let me, uh, let me pray to finish up, and then we'll move into a time of uh, community. God of majesty, so much bigger than our words could ever convey. Thank you to those that have gone before us, who have a heart to want to understand you more. Lord God, we too desire to know more about you, and we pray for greater understanding of your interactions with each other. We pray for a greater understanding of the interaction that you have with the world. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand the deeper mystery that is the Trinity. Lord, in this space, I pray that you would draw us into a deeper relationship with you. Lord, help us to understand your presence with us through the Holy Spirit. Christ in us as we pray. Christ be all around me as we sung earlier. Lord, give us an understanding of the love that you have for humanity through the heart of the Father. And give us an understanding of what it means to serve as we engage with the Son. As we consider you this week, Lord, I pray that we might engage in conversations that help challenge us about who you are. That we might grow, always resting in our justification through Jesus. Yet being challenged to develop the perseverance that you desire from us. Lord, grant us, as you granted Moses, a glimpse of your majesty, that we might truly worship and be in awe of who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. And everybody said, Amen. Thanks, team. Thanks, guys. We could all stand and we'll sing a final song, A Heart of Worship.